Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. The boss is here with us, Dr. Jeff Gore. Interim boss. Interim <laughs> boss. Jeff's, the, I guess this is your first run in the podcast studio this year. Tom, sorry, I had to introduce Jeff first. No, that's it's fine. I know where he, I stand. He signs the proverbial checks. He does. So no, that's still way above my paper. <laughs> <laughs> he signs all the other ancillary paperwork that occurs on this station. And then Hunter's over there, too. Hunter, what's up, man? How are y'all? We were sitting around, Tom and I were this morning in my office knocking around topics. And this is a topic we wanted to get some content on, kind of dive off into. Don't know that we can cover this thoroughly with one episode, but we just want to talk about resistance in general. Tom's a plant pathologist. I'm a weed scientist. Jeff's an entomologist. Hunter's a weed scientist. He's the rice agronomist, but he's... He's got a long background with weed science, so we decided to get everybody together, and we're just going to talk and see where it goes. And I teased Jeff, but Jeff, we're really happy that you're the interim director. Don doesn't take the teasing too good. Look, I got thick skin. I can handle it. I get backlash from the Don teasing, so you got to – I gotta, understand that. You got to tease Don strategically. Well, just be careful. Don may listen to this. I mean, we, we know that Angus probably won't, although he may now in his new role. <laughs> no, no. He may we know, flag we know that Angus will not because Angus has announced that you – know, You know I, I don't ever listen to any I of those. I don't listen to those. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I need to ask Jeff a question. I kind of struggled with what to ask him. Jeff, you've been the – Interim for, I don't know, what, eight or nine months now? Something like that. Since November. How many times have you signed your name in the time that you've been the interim director at Stoneville? You know, I, th- I think I probably make about a half a cent per signature at the most. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God a lot of stuff's electronic now. Has your signature evolved at all? Have you changed how you do it? No, nah, my signature was always bad, and it's gotten worse. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, so I asked that. Yeah, I feel like every time I talk to Jeff, he's signing stuff. Yeah, that's all I do. It's kind of like buying a house when you first start out on the first page. You've got a real neat signature, and by the end of it, it's just a line through yeah, it. Just, by, by the 40th time, you're just putting an X on there. There was somebody in one of those offices that once upon a time when I continued to go in there to sign paperwork, I just stopped signing my name and started putting an X on there, and they, they weren't exactly pleased with that. I said, well, keep asking me to sign my name. This is what we're going to do. You know, the, th- the thing I learned, I've learned the most in a short period of time and and I think it's the same no matter what you do and I told somebody when when I got out of graduate school and started my first job at USDA I knew exactly what I was going to be doing when I got in that job and then when I moved to Mississippi State I knew exactly what I was going to be doing in that job I had no clue what I would be doing when I stepped up to being the head and the thing that I learned is how much stuff I didn't know that I thought I knew I think you always learn that pretty quick in a new job. Man, I can't even imagine. I mean, this place is big, and there's a lot of stuff, and I know just the bare minimum. Whatever goes on on the north end of this farm is basically the extent of what I know about it, so I, I can't even imagine all the stuff that... Yeah, I've, I've learned how much I was locked into my own little world for 15 years. No question. So resistance is a big deal for us. I was thinking, Tom... I don't know that I don't probably spend about 90% of my time 
on resistance through the course of the year between Palmer, Amaranth, Italian ryegrass, barnyard grass. I mean, all the crops that I work in, we have a major species that's resistant to a lot of our herbicide modes of action. So uh, we definitely do work targeting other weed species and, of course, get calls with other species. But I think most of that work usually has a backdrop of resistance to it. I mean, it's, for example, in soybeans, I can have a really good herbicide program, but if I don't kill Palmer, it doesn't really matter because that's the one that's driving the train is the way I always describe it. And same with barnyard grass in rice. So I think I spend a majority of my time on resistance. And I know you guys have as well. I mean, Jeff, y'all have got a laundry list of resistant insects and problems building in the future too. Yeah, I mean, pretty much everything that we deal with is about resistance. And that's certainly very different with the way insects work through the year, kind of being a compound pest, you know, with multiple generations. We deal with that less in, right. the, in the weed world. And then, Tom, I know that the resistance that y'all has can maybe a, a little bit newer phenomenon. I don't know if it's a newer phenomenon. It's a newer problem in the mid-southern states. I would say yes. In, in the last almost decade, and that's when you were sitting here talking, I was just was thinking about it. in the last five to six years, we've had to retool in what we do from the plant pathology standpoint in Stoneville and really pick up some additional skill sets and bring in some different people because most of the issues we deal with, the best way to determine if it is a resistance occurrence or resistance is occurring or that's building up over time is, is through having somebody that can do any of the molecular trials. And that's, we've added an entire molecular lab on our hallway, have had numerous graduate students run through there and do that. And that, a lot of that developed because we had a longtime colleague on campus retire. And through that retirement, we realized we really needed somebody that could do that type of work here in Stoneville to help support that effort because the resistance issue is compounding upon itself in the row crop production systems in the, in the mid-southern United States. And I think, you know, I certainly don't want to jump the gun, but there will be numerous publications coming out probably in the next six to nine to 12 months on most of the work that we've done either here in Mississippi alone or in some of the states and our surrounding geography. I got a question for Hunter. See how good of a job you did, Jason. <laughs> Hunter, where does resistance come from? Not sure if this is where you're going with that. I mean, there's a lot of different things that contribute to resistance. Genetic diversity. For us, the amount of generations you have, which I would say in entomology, that's probably a bigger issue than we look at in weed science. You know, seed production, amount of generations you have, the conditions, the environment, the growth period that you have for whatever specific pest you're talking about. Well, I mean, those are all things that can contribute to the development of resistance. But one thing that I always like to remind people is resistance is always out there. You talked about genetic diversity. To develop resistance, you have to start with one, or really, I guess, two, somewhere out there in the population. And those resistance genes are extremely rare without selection pressure. One of the biggest things that I see in weed science is when we get resistance is as soon as we find an answer to control that problematic weed, say Palmer amaranth with the oxen herbicides, we're controlling it right now. We have weed shifts and then you have another weed that pops up 
that that herbicide that you're now using might be weaker on um, and you've got other issues that you've got to figure out how to control as soon as you solve your resistance problem you know you don't you can't solve resistance but as soon as you find something that works on that problematic pest there's gonna be a new one emerge that you've got to deal with at that point i think that's a lot of of what we do yeah i was gonna put hunter on the spot too jeff with a similar question so hunter you're the one that's closest to having taken a class on any of this stuff so what is a definition of resistance and it may be a little bit different for us in weed science as it is for entomology or plant pathology but just so folks know the thought process is when we talk about resistance what is your definition of resistance i think people get mixed up between tolerance and resistance so with tolerance it's uh something that survives that it's always been able to survive say in our my background herbicides you've got you know, rice that can survive certain herbicides, and they've always been able to survive certain herbicides. And then you've got the, the clear field stuff where they develop that to have new path or uh, ME resistance. And so that's something that typically before you weren't able to apply that herbicide to it, and now you can because of that resistance. Yeah. So resistance is developed, tolerance has always been there. That's what I think. And to Jeff's point about it, being there, the way I describe it has always been you found the needle in a stack of needles. Right. If you want to call it, a, in a weed species, if you want to call it a trait, gene, whatever, you know, you've got, say, 100 plants out there, and you put this treatment out, you killed 99 of them, and that one that survived is the one that has this trait, gene, whatever, that allowed it to survive. It makes babies and then that one that survived this year turns into maybe five that survives next year, turns into 50 that survives the year after that, turns into you've got a whole population that you no longer can kill with that particular treatment. And I think we lose sight of that. People associate the resistance with the treatment that was used. We, that treatment didn't cause that resistance. That treatment exploited that trait or gene in that population and basically uncovered it. Right. It selected out all the most susceptible individuals in that population. And then you you that eradicated gets into, your sensitive population. Right. And then you get into all the different types of resistance with metabolism or gene amplification or gene mutation. A lot of different things go on there that lead to that. Tom and I talked with Larry Stuckle a few weeks ago about some of those in the Palmer that they have in West Tennessee. And that's some really scary stuff, and I'm not even remotely qualified to talk about any of that. Uh, Larry, I think, did a good job of, of bringing that down to a, a pretty conversational level where we could understand some of what he was talking about, but very complicated stuff. Well, and it's interesting that, that Jeff asked Hunter, and you followed back up with that, asking probably the youngest person in the room who's been in class most often or at a point that was most recently – the hard part is is keeping up with every single one of these things because each of us has to stay on top of that literature, especially if you have graduate students that are working on those things. And tracking down all of that and keeping up on top of all the reading that goes with that is pretty difficult at this point because there's all sorts of things that go on in my discipline that staying up to speed on some of those things is rather difficult, and that's – you know, it's harder and harder and harder to find either students that want to work outside all the time or students that want to work in the lab all the time 
And when you're talking about the resistance issues, at least in the plant pathology world, you really have to have somebody who wants to spend the bulk of the time in the laboratory because it's all going to be running gels and all, all the stuff that really talking about that on this podcast will make people glaze over like, Oh wow. What on earth is he even talking about? Because that's when you get down to the molecular level, sometimes you don't see the resistance occurring as you do easily when you're talking about a herbicide application that either did or did not kill a specific weed or an insecticide application that did or did not take care of that particular insect. It's something that occurs that maybe you don't necessarily observe regularly, at least in the plant pathology world from a disease management standpoint, which is really difficult to talk about. You and I talking about Palmer and then you bringing in some of the pathogens and we mentioned seed production, the number of seed. My comment was that one survivor out of a hundred, but then yours is kind of an economy of scale and the scale for most pathogens compared with a weed or compared with an insect is just not even in the same ballpark it's so many zeros you can't understand it's like somebody talking about the national debt when they throw something out there that's a trillion and you have to remember what the difference between a million a billion and a trillion is the difference between a million and a billion is a thousand and the difference between a billion and a trillion is a thousand so what is that ten thousand difference between a million and a trillion that's big and quantifying that is really difficult. So when you talk about survivability of a small subset of that population, what's it take for resistance to develop by making a repeated fungicide application in a pathogen population? It doesn't take very much more than likely for that to occur in a short period of time. Well, another big issue like for us is staying ahead of the curveball. And, you know, when we see something coming down the pipeline that's about to be a big problem finding a solution for that before we get to that big problem and you know for you and Dr. Gore I would think that would be a lot harder because I feel like there's a lot fewer options for y'all in y'all's field as far as they're with us with the amount of herbicides that we have that we can try to combat an issue with. I would say that you're you're right and wrong about the difference. Nine times out of ten, when we deal with a resistance issue in insects, we see it coming, like you're talking about, and we mm-hmm. can have a plan. But then we really have those curveballs like we had last year with fall armyworms in rice that are a migratory insect. We see the same thing with, like, soybean loopers that don't overwinter here. They migrate up from South and Central America. And so it's that's a different situation where one year we can have complete susceptibility of those pests to an insecticide the next year they fly up from a different area of south america where they've been heavily selected and all of a sudden we have a resistant population that's where it gets really tough to make that call and make those changes from a recommendation standpoint so when that happens that's where i was kind of going with that i feel like we don't get caught like that as quickly as easily as it can in your field yeah don and i've always teased back and forth that the stuff i go after you know it's rooted in the ground it doesn't move and don's always talking about the the critters is a word he uses that that y'all chase you know they're they're moving around and so the way y'all do stuff's very different than the way we do stuff another difference is most often in a population, in a weed population, once that population is resistant, it's going to be resistant. Now, I can get the seed bank beat down to a manageable level, 
But then if we backed off our management and let those numbers increase again, in the absence of the treatment that it was resistant to after several generations, that trait's still going to be there. Of course, for sure, with y'all's migratory insects, and they're not all migratory, right? but that would be a difference. And Tom, I assume in a pathogen population, I guess maybe in a soil-borne pathogen, once it's there, it's there. Yeah, and even if you remove that product, you're not changing the population back to what it was. So once that genetic component has been inserted and then increased over a period of time within that population, you don't change that back. At least that's what we've determined from some of the work we've done. And we've most of everything we've worked on here has been foliar. And the hard part about it, and I still struggle with this, is that the system of integrated pest management went out the window about mm, 2005, 2006. And now we just automatically apply fungicide applications. And I struggle with the, with the definitions. Lots of people want to call that a prophylactic. And in a prophylactic system, at least in my head, you're making that fungicide application with the intent of managing disease. That would be a prophylactic application. Automatic application is just making a fungicide application and expecting to pick up some yield. You're not even factoring in disease. The hard part about that is the work that we're doing here most recently suggests that now we're developing resistance within a group of organisms that don't even seem like they're causing much disease or that they're really not disease-causing issues, and all of a sudden they're resistant as well. That's the part right now that I think is the struggle moving forward because how are we going to account for some of those things that maybe weren't a problem 10 years ago? What do we do if they become a problem and they're already resistant to anything that you'd put in that field to manage them? Well, and that's like Hunter mentioned with weed shifts in our world. Prickly cider is a prime example of that. We've started using a lot of dicamba treatments in our row crops, soybeans and cotton, to manage palmer. And now all of a sudden, prickly cider is a problem. Prickly cider ain't coming in the jug of dicamba. I mean, it's there. It's just dicamba and Roundup is not the best treatment on that particular weed species, and now we've blown it up. We've blown it up in my field. I've never rated prickly cider for years and years, and now the past couple years, it's just one of the species that we have enough of out there to rate. We have our own example of of what you're describing there. Jeff, one thing I thought about, there's some cases in herbicide resistance among some weed species where there's a fitness penalty associated with that resistance. Is there an insect example like that? I don't know of any in weeds that we have around here. Uh, It's certainly not in Palmer. It seems like the resistance ones are are much more vigorous than the susceptible ones, but is there a case of insect resistance? Yeah, and I was going to bring that up when you were talking about a population reverting back to being susceptible. Well, that's what made me think about it. That's what happens a lot with insecticides and insects or any arthropod is we have several examples where an insect or, or another arthropods develop resistance to an insecticide. You remove that insecticide, and within a year or two, it's back to susceptible. Spider mites are notorious for reverting back to being susceptible. And it's all because there's fitness cost associated with that resistance gene. If there wasn't, that gene would be common in the population all the time. So, yeah, we definitely see that a lot, especially with spider mites is a big one. I'd say anything we've looked at recently, there's actually a fitness benefit 
or something being resistant to a particular fungicide. See, I almost feel like that's the way it is with a lot of at least the weeds we have in the southern U.S. Yeah, and that's that's even a harder thing to talk about because then what does what does that mean? What is fitness for starters means that it's a stronger, it has a or tends to be more. I'm trying to think of the word. My evolutionary biology wants to say it's fecund, but nobody would know what that word means. I don't even know what that word means. Well, it has to do with strength and the fact that it basically reproduces more, I think, if I'm not mistaken. That was a long time ago. I'll go back to fitness. Fitness just basically is something's either more fit, so it has more ability to survive, or it's less fit. It has less ability to survive. That's basically the easiest way to break down fitness. Well, and that, and that's what resistance is. That's I right. I mean, in the presence of that selection pressure, those resistant individuals become more fit. That's right. And, and then in some systems, you remove that particular pesticide application and the population reverts back to something or it doesn't because then the benefit is even in the situation whereby that particular pesticides not present, that organism may be stronger in the general population. Right. What we typically see, and this kind of goes back to reverting back, is what we see a lot of times with with insects and insecticides, is the first year we start seeing resistance, just say we're taking a some type of bioassay and getting a percent resistance. That first year say we end up with 25% of the population that's resistant by the by September and then through the winter that goes down so we started off at like 0.01% went up to 25% then the next year that winter that resistance is going to drop we might go down to 1% and then the following year when we start spraying that insect again it's going to go up to 35 or 40% and then in the winter it's going to drop down to 5%. Basically what's happening is we're not re- removing that selection pressure for a long enough period of time for that population to completely revert back to susceptibility. And so it, it, we never go back down to that baseline. We get close to it and the, the lower level coming out of the winter gets higher and higher every year. And it just escalates Which over results time. in us being higher and higher at the end of the year each year. And I think we're seeing that right now. I mean, it's kind of a perfect example of what we're seeing with bollworms and cotton resistance to BT. We started off with the one gene, bollgard cotton. It was pretty good against bollworms, not great, but we had to spray bollgard for bollworms. It did a lot better than non-BT cotton, but we still had to spray for them. And the frequency of sprays and the frequency of resistance started increasing over time, and then we came out with Bolgar 2, and that number of sprays and the resistance levels dropped because we added another selection pressure in there, in other words, another BT gene. And we were back down close to that baseline again, but not quite all the way down to where we were before any BT was out there. And then that resistance slowly increased over time again, and now we've come out with the three-gene cottons that have the VIP gene in them, and we've gone back down again. But still, again, we haven't gone back down to that level of susceptibility that we were at in 1996 when Bolgard first came out. So the potential is always there to start developing that resistance again. 
when is resistance not resistance? When do you get the question about this population is resistant, but it's not, at the end of the day, it's not resistant? We don't have as rigorous of a procedure in entomology as you do in weed science or certainly plant pathology. I mean, we've, we have a lot of people working on the molecular aspects of resistance, but in terms of calling something resistance, we don't necessarily have to have all the molecular work done. The main thing that we call things resistant in multiple ways. So if we just see a gradual change over time based on bioassays, we'll say that we're developing resistance. In an ideal world, we want to show that that resistance trait is heritable, that it's passed down from generation to generation. But we always we can't always do that in the lab and show that. And so, and we're starting to get some new definitions for different kinds of resistance, field evolved resistance, practical resistance. I mean, it's getting really complicated of what exactly resistance is. From my standpoint, when we stop being able to effectively control a population, we have resistance, essentially. And what we see a lot of times, like plant bugs is a perfect example. We used to smash plant bugs in early season cotton with a third of a pound of orthene. Well, now we're spraying three-quarters of a pound to a pound and still getting by. We're only getting about, at best, 60 or 70% control, but we're still using it and, and being effective with it from a management standpoint, but it is resistant. Those, those populations are resistant. We've shown that. But, you know, the interesting thing to that was is Gordon Snodgrass, when he was at USDA, he was like the plant bug bioassay guru. And we started getting a bunch of calls from consultants saying that they weren't controlling plant bugs with organophosphates, with acephate, orthene. And so we were going out collecting all these populations, bringing them back, and Gordon was running them in the lab, and he was saying, nope, they're susceptible. And it took him about two or three years after those consultant complaints before he could ever truly document that it was resistance with his lab bioassays. I guess the bottom line of that is is that determining what is and is not resistance is often a moving target and it's very complicated, especially in some of the biological systems that we deal with. And I was going to say for weed science, it can get really complicated too. Environment's always a big deal. Well, you know, was it too wet? Was it too dry? There's certain herbicides that work better at times of day, sunlight, surfactants, uh, rates and timings. There's just a lot of boxes that you need to check in order to be able to say, all right, that particular population of that particular species, it just didn't respond right. to that treatment. And we know all these other things were good, and, and this is the one bad thing. Right. You don't always have that information at hand. So I think we have a lot of cases where we think this population is resistant, and maybe it is in another county neighboring county even, but that particular population's not, and there's just some unfortunate thing went wrong during that treatment where it didn't respond to the oh, treatment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, most of our insecticides, especially once we get into July and start watering, we're spraying with an airplane, and there's a lot of things that can go wrong with an insecticide application. Well, another issue is if you get away from the pesticides and start looking at other ways to manage problematic pests, Say we figure out a way to manage, you know, a certain weed or you suppress it with like a cover crop or something from emerging, then that creates a problem 
for y'all in another way. So you're talking about herbicide resistance in a weed influencing and if you manage it in a different way, disease management. You know, if we've got cover crops, does that give insects something that they overwinter in, create a bigger issue for Dr. Gore, maybe to deal with? Oh yeah, it definitely does with certain pests. Have you seen that with any pathogens yet? I've not seen any of that firsthand, but I know there are groups working on that right now. The problem is most of that's done upper Midwest. Not a lot of that's been done down in the southern United States, and I would imagine with the winter and the humidity and the moisture content in general, that could shift and change things. But that's definitely something I think moving forward we need to consider. The problem is, is that's not such an easy thing, I think, to really get involved in. I mean, I definitely see agriculture moving in that direction. How we're going to compensate for that from a research standpoint, I don't know. That won't be such an easy thing to consider. I guess where I was going with that is as soon as we address one issue, we find another one that pops up from that. I just would add that if you'd asked me when I started this job 15 years ago how much of a component would be addressing resistance or the development of resistance or how to prevent that, I think I probably would have told you not very much. But I'd never in my wildest dreams thought that we would be putting on as many acres would be receiving particular fungicides and all the rest of that. So I think that that's a that's the portion of the system I think that's going to be difficult to really wrap your mind around moving forward. And there's a legislative component, or I say legislative, a regulatory component to it that we didn't even begin to cover. That's definitely going to influence the way we manage these issues in the future. Jeff, Hunter, thanks for taking the time out of your day today to sit down and discuss this. I think this is a topic we probably will have to continue to address, and I'm sure that we need to spend a little bit more time talking about this year. It's always a constant evolving situation absolutely thank you for having us yeah i'd like to as the summer goes on maybe we could talk about some of the problems that we see coming up with these specific fields that we've talked about today oh yeah i think that's a good point and our regular listeners we really appreciate the continued comments and everything else keep them up it's certainly something we continue to enjoy and we'll continue to bring you up-to-date content as it progresses throughout the season The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.